So I feel that. I feel the weight, the inadequacy. And so we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's word to transform lives. No matter how eloquent I can be or how clear I can be or how passionate or how much I can raise my voice and, and do different things, I can't change a heart. You can't change a heart. Only God's word can change a heart. So with that kind of posture, I'm, I'm coming to this text and I welcome you to that kind of posture because the challenge with our text this morning is that we're talking about the death of Jesus and all that Jesus' death accomplishes for us. And the danger of something like that is that if you grew up hearing this, maybe you grew up in church or you grew up around church, you hear these things like Jesus died for your sins, that, that there's something inside of our hearts that can just kind of get calloused and it just kind of goes over like just, okay, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. I know what that means, Sam. And, and we can lose the beauty and majesty of something like the death of Christ. And so I'm feeling the weight of trying to take something that may feel familiar. And for those of you who grew up in church, maybe even church kids here who are sitting with us today, we're so glad that you are here, that you may be like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. My parents tell me all the time. But do you really know this? Do I really know this? No, we don't. And so I'm excited about that. And if you are a visitor, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, you're a skeptic, you've been away from church, away from God, and this is a big deal that you're here, we think it's a big deal you're here. We're really glad you're here. And we hope that through this gathering and through interacting with our people that you get closer to knowing what all that God has done for you in Jesus. We're so excited that you're here. If you have questions, good. Come talk to us with those questions. If you have doubts, fine. Come talk with us. Um, if you have struggles, you're in, you're in a good place. We're full of struggles and challenges here. So thank you for being here. So let me jump into where, we're, where we've been before we get to where we'll be today. So over the last few weeks, we've been journeying to this moment where Jesus dies on the cross. Um, a few weeks ago, we witnessed the most unjust trial, sham trial ever witnessed in history on the most innocent man who ever lived. We see Pontius Pilate, a spineless leader, bow to public opinion, even though he verbally knew that this man was innocent. He bowed to public opinion, not something that we have not experienced in our generation with politicians. He orders the brutal torture of Jesus, a, a torture that would be absolutely on the list of inhumane acts if it were to exist today. You would not be allowed to do this in countries. There would be an international uproar. What scourging and flogging would do to a human body would be something you and I could not even imagine. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ by Jim, with Jim Caviezel, Mel Gibson, it doesn't even go far enough. Does not even go far enough. And then we see innocent Jesus, even though he's starved, he hasn't drank a drop of water, eaten in a day, he hasn't slept, have to carry this giant rugged cross on his shoulders, ripping his lacerated back yet again, falling as he goes while people mock and laugh and some cry. And then finally, he is crucified on the cross and Jesus is slowly suffocating to death. And even in the midst of untold pain, this word, we get this word excruciating. He's experiencing excruciating pain throughout his body as his body, his body's starting to shut down, his organs are shutting down, his, he's losing so much blood. And even in that midst of that state, not sleeping, not eating, not drinking, being tortured, being mocked, being betrayed, he extends mercy to the thief on the cross next to him. This, this is our Savior. This is, this is unimaginable, absurd, unfathomable when you think about uh, Jesus like this. And 
And then now we get to the moment of his death. And according to Mark chapter 12, verse 25, the crucifixion began early at 9 a.m. And for the last three hours, Jesus has been slowly suffocating to death on the cross. But something miraculous happens at 12, at noon. Would you look with me? Chapter 23, verse 44. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you, and we'll have it on the screen. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, which is for us 12, noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Verse 45, while the sun's light failed. I'll just stop there. So, like I said, sixth hour is actually 12 o'clock, and for three hours, the entire land, we don't know how far that stretched, but where they were at at least, was shrouded in deep darkness. Can you imagine that? In the middle of day. And if you've been to Israel, I've been to Israel, that's where I met my wife on an Israel study trip. In the middle of the day, it, the sun is high, it's high noon, the sun is beating on you, it is bright. Can you just imagine the idea of trying to block out the sun in the middle of the day? Could we even do that with modern technology? And you, you, you would say, well, maybe there was an eclipse. Well, that is astrologically impossible because uh, during this time of the Passover, where the moon was at, it would be impossible for there to be eclipse. And if there was an eclipse, it would only last more than six minutes. But we are not talking about six minutes. We are talking about three hours of complete darkness. Imagine how unsettling that would be. If you were here, you're a Roman centurion, you're a Roman guard doing what you do best, crucifying people, something that the Romans absolutely perfected. It's just business as usual. Another guy, another insurrectionist, and you're crucifying this guy and you're watching him. You are sharing his clothing, ripping it, playing games, gambling over him, mocking this guy. In the middle of the day, it gets dark. Lights go off. Have you ever thought about that? How could this happen? What is going on here? How could it possibly be that the entire land would be in pitch darkness in the middle of the day for three hours? Well, what's going on here? Is this the power of evil? Is this like in a movie where dark clouds come and we know that it's, you know, Satan's like, whoa, moi, like he is getting his way and there's darkness coming? I actually don't think this is Satan's power. And the reason why I say that is because of the Old Testament. Let me, let me share this with you. If you're familiar with the Old Testament in the Bible, there is a special day that comes out throughout the scriptures over and over again. It comes in different names. The day of the Lord is probably the most common name. The day of vengeance, judgment day. And if you look at each of these descriptions of this day, this very special day, one characteristic will be clear and consistent among all those descriptions, and it's darkness. Darkness. Let me give you a couple quick examples. There are many, many more, but let me do a couple for the sake of time. Joel 2, verse 31. Would you read this out loud with me? The sun shall be turned Notice the darkness. Zephaniah 1, 15. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And let me share with you one more that may sound even more familiar, Amos 8, 9. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. 
and darken the earth in broad daylight. You see that? So this, is, this is no accident. This is not some astronomical kind of phenomenon that is just happening, that it just adds to the whole, it's coincidental, it just adds to the whole drama of the situation of Jesus, this guy dying. No, God planned, ordained all these things to happen. This is not hard for him. It doesn't, it's not hard for him to do something supernatural like this, even though it'd be impossible for us. Now, the question is, what's the point of this darkness? What is this darkness alluding to? It's a physical sign that's real, but it actually has an illustration, symbolic for deeper meanings that are more than just darkness and what darkness represents. I, I like how one pastor puts it, Tim Keller, he puts it this way. It's a judgment day before judgment day. The darkness is coming down on Jesus the eternal justice is coming down on Jesus. The judgment that eradicates and demolishes evil is coming down on Jesus and eradicating and demolishing him. Why would Jesus do that? You have to have your judgment day come down on him so that you don't have to go through it yourself. See, what this concept we're going to unpack more and more in this sermon is that the wrath of God is being poured out upon Jesus, the innocent son, who willingly volunteered for this. And as Jesus is taking this on, the darkness is symbolic representative of this wrath coming on, this darkness coming on. Jesus is willingly being slaughtered as a sacrificial Passover lamb, as we've said in previous sermons, for the sake of all who put their hope in him. I also think it's no coincidence, if you know your Old Testament, what are the two final plagues that come upon Egypt? Number nine, what is it? Darkness. And number 10, the death of the firstborn. It's no coincidence. This is not a surprise. The final two judgments upon Egypt is deep darkness, supernatural darkness, while the land of Goshen and God's people are in light. Is, Egypt is shrouded in a darkness, and yet, and then also those who are not putting their trust in the lamb's blood, in the, lamb, the blood over the lintel and the doorposts. On that Passover night, the firstborn die, and we see that here, and we talked about that in previous sermons, if you want to take a listen to go into that more. Let me give you a passage from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 to kind of help make sense of this. For our sake, God, he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that through him we may be right with God or made the righteousness of God. Let me explain that more. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he was sin itself, as if he did every sin, committed every sin that you and I have ever committed. In fact, he is being treated as if he's, being, he's crucifying Jesus. What I mean by that, I, it just blew me away. As Jesus is hanging on that cross, right there in that moment, he is dying for the soldiers around him who just crucified him. He is being punished for their sin. He's being punished for being one of the Sanhedrin that would execute him. He's being punished as if he is Pontius Pilate. Jesus on that cross is treated as if he did ever, every sin that ever was committed. Every sin on him was laid. The largest one, the smallest one, the one that nobody knows about, the one that haunts us at night, every single one is laid on him 
One preacher put it this way, wave after wave of our sin was poured out over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours, his soul recoiled and convulsed as all our lies, infidelities, hatreds, jealousies, murders, and pride were poured upon his purity. And so the father treated Jesus as if he did everything Sam Choi had ever did and ever will do. The innocent, most innocent man who ever lived was treated as if he was the most wicked man who ever lived. Did you catch that? Is, are you, Christian, are you calloused by that reality? The most innocent man who ever lived is treated as if he's the most wicked man who ever lived. This is what the Bible calls propitiation. Now, I'm going to do a little theology lesson, and it's something that we have not done at All People's Church because at the end of the day, we want you to know your Bibles, not know what so-and-so theologian says or what this camp says. We want you to know your Bibles. And propitiation is actually a word in the Bible. So I want to teach you it because it's really important. Would you say this word with me? Propitiation. 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 Okay, many of us think about expiation when we think about the cross. What, what I mean by that is expiation is the cleansing and removal of our sin. And that's 100% accurate. That's what happens at the cross. Our, your sin is removed. It's removed. As far as the east and from the west, what Jesus does on the cross, he cleanses you of your sin, removes it from you as if you ever, never done it. But there is another side of the cross. Because all of us have sinned, and the judgment of sin, the results of sin, the payment of sin is death. So someone has to die for our sin. So yes, expiation is what the cross does. Jesus is removing our sin, cleansing us our sin, but propitiation is Jesus dying as if he did our sins, dying in place of our us. Propitiation means that God's wrath is satisfied or absorbed for us. In other words, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God so you and I do not have to. When I first learned this when I was 18 or 20, I don't remember what year, it was like I became a Christian all over again because for years I, I thought to myself, Jesus, why did you have to die? Why couldn't you have just snapped your, your fingers and say, you guys are forgiven because I say so? And what I didn't understand is that God's law, justice, demands penalty to be paid. I didn't understand this. And so who does Jesus save you from? God. He saves you from the wrath of God. If you've never heard this, you've not fully understood the, the depths of the gospel. The gospel is simple. It is Jesus died for my sins. For the Bible tells me so. That is true. But what does that mean that he died for your sins? It means that he died instead of you. There is a substitution that happens. Let me give you a text if you're skeptical. This is a biblical word. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Would you read this out loud with me? In this is love. Notice that big L word is in this sentence, love. See, our culture, our sensibilities cannot fathom love and justice, love and judgment being in the same sentence. Those are mutually exclusive, are they not? And yet, because God loves us, he's compelled to die for us. And yet to withhold, not withhold, to uphold his justice and his just standards. A God that does not care about injustice is not a good loving God. It's not a good God. 
And yet at the cross, justice and love kiss. They're married. So what's the result of this death, this substitutionary death that Jesus dies? Let's see in this next section. Verse 45. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Wow, there's going to be so much here. You ready? This is going to be good. What is this curtain? Well, to understand this curtain, you have to understand what it is covering. You don't just have curtains hanging out in midair, right? It covers something. What is it covering? Well, if you read in the book of Leviticus, we learn about this place called the Holy of Holies. This is where God would chose to manifest his special presence. What I mean by that is the Bible teaches clearly that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And yet, when he wants, he especially reveals his presence, manifests, shows his presence in special places at special times. And so at the fall, when man rejected God's good rule, we lost Communion, fellowship, nearness to God's presence, we're no longer allowed to be near him because light cannot dwell with darkness without obliterating the darkness. And so God had to find a way so he could touch earth without destroying earth, where heaven can kiss earth without obliterating those who would be near him. Again, that may sound contradictory, but just try to wrap your mind. How does light dwell with darkness without obliterating the darkness? And man is full of darkness. I am full of darkness. And so how can we approach a God of light? God has to find a way to mediate his presence among sinful man. And so the Holy Holies was a special place in the temple where God's presence dwelled. It was like a mini throne room. And it was off limits, though. To everyone except the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And even to enter it, he would have to do all these rituals. He had to be pure and clean. And so on that day, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, this is what happened. I'm giving you a really quick view of it. There's a lot more here. The high priest would take two goats, okay? So I'm going to, this is one goat. I'll just represent this side. One goat. And on that goat, he would lay hands on that goat, and pronounce all the sins of Israel upon that goat. And then that goat, called the scapegoat, would be cast out and it would go wandering in the wilderness and die. And it, as it leaves the camp, it's just symbolizing this picture that our sins are taken away. We are cleansed, the sins are removed. And that's where we get this idea of expiation that I just shared about. Sins are removed from us. They're no longer counted against us. It's as it, it is as if you've never done it. But then there's another side of the of atonement, like I just did. So the other goat, they would take the other goat and they would slaughter this spotless goat. And then they would take that blood and put that blood and sprinkle it in the Holy Holies upon something called the mercy seat. And this was, would be the propitiation for God's people. This goat is dying instead of God's people dying for their sin and wickedness. You see? So on day of Yom Kippur, you see both expiation and propitiation coming together, both simultaneously happening. Now, this would happen once a year from one guy for one people. Now, let's think about this curtain. There was a special curtain that would veil or protect the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and from other people. This curtain 
was roughly 40 feet high. So imagine how high the top of this ceiling is. I don't know, any architectures, architects in here, how high is that ceiling maybe? 25 feet, maybe, 20, 30? Taller than that, a huge curtain, 40 feet wide or 40 feet high. The, the width of the curtain, the thickness of the curtain, some right, is the, the, the length of a man's hand. We're talking thousands of pounds, beautifully ornate with pictures of a throne room, purple, gold, and all these things. But you know what? That, as beautiful as that curtain was, it was a constant sign of stay out. As one of my favorite children's book says, because of your sin, you can't come in. It was a sign of this far and no further. You cannot get that close. You don't have access to God like that. You can't just enter into the throne room like that. And so it was a constant reminder to God's people that this world is broken because God's original design is that he would have fellowship, face-to-face -face fellowship with his people. And so the curtain was a reminder that the world is not as it ought to be. Listen, all the time we hear kids and atheists and skeptics say, if God is real, why can't we see him? Well, we used to be able to, but we lost that kind of access when we sinned and rejected him. So the curtain is just one temporary measure to bring some sort of gap, mediation between God's holiness and his light and our sinfulness. And so back to our text. This curtain is torn. After hundreds of years of being that symbol of there's a limited access to God's presence, it is torn. And according to Mark's gospel, it's on the screen. And the curtain of the temple, would you read this out loud? Was torn in two from top to bottom. Why is that significant? Well, because like I told you, this curtain is thousands of pounds. It's not like one guy could just kind of shimmy up there and just start cutting with kitchen shears. This is an impossible feat for from the 40 feet tall for that to be ripped down. So what does that show us? That shows us this is a divine act. God is breaking open the doors for his throne room. He's making a way. It's not man doing it. Man cannot cover the chasm between us and God. This is God doing it and saying, I'm going to make a way for you to be near me. I'm ripping open the doors through my son Jesus so you can have access to me. That's what the curtain is showing. What is going on when God removes it? We see this from the writer of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he, he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. The tearing of the curtain demonstrated fresh new access and intimacy with God for all who would put their trust in him. Jesus offered up his body as the final Passover lamb. No more sacrifices would ever be needed. No more Yom Kippur would ever be needed. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So what does it mean for you and me today that the veil was torn. Practically, what does that mean? Say, okay, that, that sounds good theologically. You're using all these Greeky words, propitiation, expiation, but what does that mean practically for me day to day? Well, first of all, it means that you have access to intimacy with God like never before. I think this is hard for me to preach rightly because if you grew up in church, these things 
become familiar. Oh yeah, of course I have access to God. Of course he wants to be near me. <laughs> Look at me, you know, right? Like we just have this casual, entitled sense that of course God would be near me. But if you grew up as a Jew, you would, you would not think that way. You would think, wait, God wants me to be near him? That's, that doesn't make sense. And if you are cued in with our sinfulness, it doesn't make sense for us too. It is a scandal. It's absurd that he would want to be near Sam, despite all the times I failed him, all the times I've betrayed him, all the sinful things that I would be ashamed to put on a screen for you to see. That God wants to be near me? Yes. And the, and the veil being torn, the curtain being torn is a physical demonstration of that reality. Here's, here's another implication. God's presence is no longer limited to just one man, a male, once a year from one ethnicity. But it's accessible for man, woman, child, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, no matter your background. Can you imagine the envy you would feel looking at the high priest? Man, maybe you're female, female in the Jewish Israel. And you're thinking, man, I wish I was a man and I was a high priest. I wish I could go in that holy of holies. I wish. Man, that's not fair. All of us can enter. In fact, the Bible promises in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will do what? Draw near to you. He's opened up the invitation. If you want to be near to me, you can be as near as you want. What a scandal. Even though we are sinful, we can enter by the blood of Jesus. See, the cross brings forgiveness, but the veil torn brings access. The cross brings forgiveness, but the veil torn brings access. We can go to God, our Father, with every need. Nothing is beneath his notice. Nothing is too much or too little for him. You can go to your king at any time because he's also your father. Verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, this he breathed his last. When you and I die, though our bodies may temporarily perish until the resurrection, our spirits will live on. And we see this in this text with Jesus. Likewise, Jesus gives up his spirit. Jesus does not commit himself to the grave or tomb, but what does he commit himself to? His father's hands. His father's strong, loving, steady, trustworthy, warm hands. He commits his spirit to that. And likewise, any of us here who are trusting and following Jesus, when our bodies die, our spirits are going to be with God. Though your body may be in a funeral home or in a grave, your spirit is in the strong and loving hands of your father. That's good news. It's good news. You get to be with God. You get to be with him. You don't just go to this weird cloudy area where we're all floating around, bored all the time, singing worship songs. You actually get to be with God. That's a good news. That's the greatest result of the gospel. And last week, Pastor Daniel stressed the fact that Jesus at any time could have just hit the abort button and said, I'm out. I don't deserve this. I'm Jesus. I'm innocent. I'm done. Father, tapped out, I'm done. He could have done that, and yet he stayed the course for love. And it struck me so powerfully this week as I studied this, Jesus decides when he dies. 
In the other gospels, we see him cry out, it is finished. Then and only then does Jesus die. Only when he finishes his mission and what his father asked him to do, then and only then will Jesus say, I'm done. Even on the cross, the most vulnerable, helpless position you could ever be in, even Jesus then has power over life and death. Since his mission is completed, he can't wait to be reunited with his father. Can you imagine the separation he must have felt on that cross, never ever feeling distance between him and the father, and in that moment he finally can be there? Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament again, you may notice that Jesus' words are, is actually a quotation from Psalm 31. It's on the screen. Would you read this out loud with me? Into your hand. This was actually a well-known, well-said prayer for Jewish kids. It, it would be their form of, now I lay me down to sleep, right? I didn't grow up with those prayers, but right, something like that. It was this. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. Something they would go to bed saying, trusting God. The, the context of this prayer was prayed by King David, and his life is being hunted like a wild dog. And in the midst of this terrible, tumultuous moment of his life, he's saying, God, I trust you even though I may die. I trust you, and please protect me from death. So when David first prayed this prayer, it was his prayer to escape death. But for Jesus, he's praying it, trusting God in death. And most importantly, what's that important word that Jesus adds to this prayer that David didn't pray? Father, Father. Jesus, even in the midst of immense suffering, the most unjust death of all time, is relating with God as his Father. Even the final moments of life, Jesus is trusting his Father's plan, hoping in God. Do you trust your heavenly Father like that? Do you trust his plans like that? Even when all seems lost and nothing makes sense, do you trust him like that? Do you commit your hands, your heart, your life to him like that? Or do you question him, go to other saviors, even curse him? Well, God, if, if you are really trustworthy, then you would do everything according to my plan. See, for us in here who are trusting in Jesus, we're a mixed bag, are we not? Some days we are trusting with all of our heart, Come what may. And there's other days that we functionally do not believe God is good and knows what he's doing. We take things in our own hands. We doubt him. We do things to get ourselves out of our situation, not trusting him in the process. We say to ourselves, God, if you're really good and wise and powerful, you wouldn't do blank. And yet we have Jesus the Son in the most horrific situation, though he never sinned, never had a bad attitude, never harmed anyone, never deserved anything poorly done to him, never cheated, never lied, never lusted, never was arrogant. And what does the son say in that moment? Father, I trust you. He is not declaring his trust in his father because he's off the cross, but while he's still on the cross. Jesus's trust in his father is not dependent on his circumstances changing. And yet you and I, we struggle. Our trust can fluctuate up and down based off of our circumstances. God, help us. And so if you're under a circumstance that seems perplexing, that makes your heart cry out, that feels so hard, you can say, God, I don't understand. Father, I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't even like it, but I trust you. 
Into your hands I commit my heart, my hurts, my life, my situation, my sin. Maybe that's something you need to do this morning. Now what happens as a result of Jesus relinquishing his spirit? Would you see verse 47 with me? Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. What did the centurion see? He saw a righteous man, an innocent man. What, what, what evidence was that? Well, that this man, while he's on the cross, he's forgiving people. He's loving people. He sees that darkness come over the land in three, for three hours. He sees a man that is so clearly in the right, and something happens in his heart. And I believe the Holy Spirit did something inside of this man's heart to realize that this Jesus was the Son of God. We see in other Gospels that's actually listed. And it's interesting because throughout the entire book of Gospel of Luke, we see this consistent theme, is that the people who don't seem like they should get Jesus actually get him. The people who have no business knowing him, the prostitutes, the tax collectors who betrayed their own countrymen, the most wicked of the wicked, those are the people who actually see Jesus for who he is. And the religious scribes and Pharisees are so blinded by their learnedness and so blinded, blinded by their pride that they don't see the Messiah is right in front of them. And in fact, they're not just missing him, they're killing him. Last week we saw it was a thief on the cross that sees Jesus for who he is, and this week we see it's a Roman centurion. And this is a caution for all of us, especially if you've been in church your whole life that you can be around all this, you can know all this stuff, and yet your heart can be absolutely oblivious to the beauty and the truth of Jesus. So God, help us. And simultaneously, this is an encouragement. If you are a skeptic, if you're not sure about church, you're not sure about Jesus and this good book, this is encouragement for you because you can have access to God because the Bible shows regularly the people who are struggling, the people who shouldn't get it, get it. That God works and extends mercy to those kind of people. Now, let's see another response. Verse 48 and 49. <clears throat> Would you read this out loud with me? And all the crowds. <clears throat> There's some good things to think about in verse 49, but I want to focus on 48. Do any of you guys remember anyone else who beat their chest, beat their breasts in the Gospel of Luke? Does that sound familiar? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off, again, the people who shouldn't get it, the people who have no business being with God, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And yet Jesus says, that man is the one who walks home justified, not the Pharisee, judging everyone else. See, it seems like many in the crowd have changed their tune at this point. They've seen the darkness. They've seen the, the overwhelming power of, of what's going on on the cross. And in their grief, they're probably thinking, what have we done? And maybe they even heard the news that the temple's veil has been, the curtain has been torn at this point, and they know something terrible has happened, and they're complicit, and they did something about it. And yet we've preached before that being sorry for yourself, feeling bad about sin is not enough. That is not in itself repentance, but it is a start. 
And we see later on in Acts chapter 6 that many priests put their trust in Jesus later on. And I, I think that what happened at this cross, not only do we see the centurion likely come to faith, we see many others be extended mercy. And remember, Jesus prayed this just a few weeks ago. What does he say? Father, forgive them. And I think G the Father says, yes, I want to do that. And he works in many of these people and they respond with repentance. So let me lay in the plane. That was a lot. I've been yelling at you for a while. <laughs> but, I, but I hope you know that I... What, what's going on and I'm losing my voice and I'm yelling and I'm, I'm doing all this because, because I'm trying to say this is the most incredible, most terrible, the most real thing you could ever imagine. This is reality. Not your phones, not your work. This is reality. This is eternity. This is the most important thing. So I'm trying with all of my being to just bring reality because we can so fall into spiritual stupor and little things in life become the biggest things. But this is the most important thing you could ever understand and ever receive. I think the response of the people in the centurion should be ours today, declaring Jesus was innocent. He is the son of God. And that we would also beat our chests with appropriate anguish over our sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. This is not just something for those people there on that day on Calvary. It's for all of us. We all were part of that. We're all complicit. We've all added to the sins. And we say, you did not deserve that punishment. I did. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin. And then after we have sat in our ashes for a bit, we rise and declare, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to a cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Both realities, both the beating of our chest saying, Jesus, you didn't deserve that. Thank you for dying for me. And yet, thank you, Lord, that you did die for me and I'm forgiven. Thank you that you were the propitiation of my sins. You died in my stead. Thank you. But maybe you hear this, you say, I'm too sinful, Sam. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how wicked my past goes and how dark and bloody it goes. Let me remind you with the book of Hebrews again, chapter 10. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that was opened us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high a priest over the house of God, look, listen to this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can draw near and enter with confidence, not because you say, God, look at all that I did this week. God, look at all that I did this month or my life. Look how clean I am. No, 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 you draw near because you say, look, I've been washed by Jesus. I've been washed by Jesus. I can enter with confidence, not timidly, confidence before the Father. And so let me ask you this. Have you ever committed your hands to this Father, this good, loving Savior? Have you ever committed not just a situation, but your entire life? And specifically your sin. Have you given your sin? Have you stopped beating yourself over for your sin and giving it to Jesus who was already beat for your sin? Do you have peace with God? We have so many visitors today. I don't know where you're at with God. Do you actually have peace with God? Do you have peace with him, reconciliation with the Father through Jesus? So that if you were to die right now, you would see his face and you would see a face of beaming with delight and acceptance because of, of Jesus. 
Or would there be a frown of judgment because you don't have Jesus as your propitiation for your sin. You don't have him standing as your substitute, but you have to stand alone before his righteous wrath. I don't want that for any of you here. I don't wish that on my worst enemy if I had any. If you want confidence that you have peace with God, you can today. All you have to do is repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn from your shame, turn from your control, hand it over into his hands, you commit it, and put your trust in his life, death, and resurrection for you. Come talk with us today if you want that. And then get baptized as a public declaration that you're dead in your sins and you are now washed and clean and alive in Christ. We want to do that with you. We want to walk with you. And for those of us who have committed ourselves to God, let me end with this, and are actively repenting of our sin and trusting Jesus, let us worship God afresh to be, for being such a king who would die for us, die for sinners. Let us worship that the curtain has been torn and we have access to God. Let us walk further in all the benefits and the joys of what God has accomplished for us through the cross this week and more. So, the worship band is going to come up, and we're going to have a time of reflection. <clears throat> and during this time, I want to welcome um, I want to welcome you to pray and pray with each other. If there's someone that you feel like you want to pray for, go up to them, just pray for them. If there's someone you want to go up to and confess your sins and ask for prayer, ask them for prayer. Feel free to just mill around as the, God, as the Spirit leads you. If you feel that shame, you feel that conviction, and you want freedom, confess your sins, and we'll pray for that, that you may be healed. So, worship band's going to come up eventually. As I keep signaling them. <laughs> and, uh, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper after a few songs. So let me pray. Father, if there's anything I just said that was not true, either in tone or in content, would you correct me? But all that is true, let it deeply shape us forever. If there's anyone here who does not have peace with you, God, <laughs> let them run to your strong hands and commit their hands to you, their hearts to you. <clears throat> In Jesus' name.